Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Valdana Hayek, a cross-asset reporter with Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, obviously this is not an easy environment to invest in. Stocks are up big one day, down big the next day. Bond prices are rising some days, but falling most days. So what are the right asset classes to be in right now while the Federal Reserve is fighting inflation with both fists? We'll get into it with an executive who focuses on multi-asset portfolios and hedges at a major hedge fund firm. But first, Voltana, I have to confess, um, if I drift off into outer space during this podcast uh, and you have to bring me back to Earth, it's only because I'm going on vacation in less than 24 hours. I'm going to Southern California. Yeah. Because I hear that they have some beaches in Southern California that are almost- They do. Almost as nice as the Jersey Shore. So I'm going to look into that. Almost as nice. New Jersey's always number one, right? At least for me and you and- a lot of our listeners, maybe. We'll see. We'll see. It depends if they have ski ball or not on these these so called California beaches. I think that's that's an important. Where, where are you going in California? We're going to Santa Monica and uh, for like three days, and then San Diego, and the, the whole Regan clan, all three kids, my wife, we're all we're all flying out in about twenty four hours. We're big ski ball players, so that uh, a lot's going to ride on how good the ski ball uh, tables are out there. I don't know. You're going to have a really great time. San Diego is my my number one favorite city, I think. Is it? Yeah. yeah it w- I love it because it's sunny like 364 days of the year or something. You're well more traveled than me. I've I've been there once and it was, uh, I don't remember much of it, but-, but you're, Maybe it rained when you were there. You're a, you're a big jet setter. Uh, <laughs> and so you got to find someone to fill in for me next week, all right? Yeah, I do. So, uh, heads up for all the listeners. Mike won't be around. We're going to have uh, fun on your behalf. I'm sure. I'm make, sure. Make fun, probably make fun of you. I can, I, anyway. I can feel the roasting already. Yeah. Uh, I do want to bring in our guest this week, and, and maybe he can enlighten us on, on where he's calling us from. But uh, welcome to Peter Van Doyevert. He's the Managing Director of Multi-Asset Solutions at Man Group. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. I'm in New York, for what it's worth. Um, Oh, there you go. No beaches, just cold. <laughs> well, some some ugly beaches, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, at best, at best. Yeah, but Peter, maybe just to start out, can you tell us about your role at Main Group? Sure. So I sit inside Man Solutions, and I work pretty closely with clients who, whatever problem they might have. For example, it starts off typically as I have a bunch of risky assets. How do I go about hedging them? And then it kind of morphs into this inflation thing scares me. So what do I do about that? And you know, maybe I should get out of bonds. So we spend a lot of time talking about risk mitigating portfolios, but we also spend a lot of time just talking about asset allocation, whether it's risk-based tactical asset allocation or you know something broader like strategic asset allocation. Just for some background on the firm, Man Group is, is a $140 billion hedge fund manager um, in terms of asset center management. Uh, we do a lot of different things. We have discretionary managers. We've got systematic uh, and 
form of CTA, risk parity, those sorts of things. And we've got a quantumental kind of long-only firm called Numeric. So we do a lot of different things. And all of those different things come to bear to this sort of market where it it takes more than one one way to figure out what to do, more than just discretionary, more than just systematic. And I think that's what Man Solutions tries to help clients with, how to access different approaches to what seems to be a really big problem, you know, developing the market with the Fed and, and what to do with bonds and those sort of things. Peter, it seems like a, a especially tricky time to be involved in risk parity. You know, if you're if you're used to having a balanced portfolio of uh, stocks and bonds, and, and maybe even levering up uh, one side or the other, how are risk parity strategies reacting to this environment? Are they sort of abandoning their old uh, playbooks? Are they are they thinking outside of the box? I mean, I, I don't know how much you know uh, is sort of coded into their DNA that they can't sort of stray too much from. The, the main stocks and bonds strategy, but what's some of the discussions going on uh, around risk parity these days? Yeah, I, I, I think there's, it depends a little bit how you manage it and it depends what the risk parity fund is set up with. So, you know, for our own risk parity funds, they actually have uh, weighting in commodities. So you start off the year, if you're a 60-40 manager and you're stuck with bonds and equities, they both went down the first quarter. And what are you supposed to do about that? And it turns out if you have, if you diversify your bonds and equities, and that's what risk parity tries to do, right? It tries to diversify first between bonds and equities. So it takes more bond risk. I think that's what you're alluding to problematically. Yeah. Um, secondarily, <laughs> it might look at other asset classes. We do use tips for inflation. We have commodities. And I think a lot of our peers as well. So you know, there's a bit of you know, the huge spike up in commodities has been a big benefit for risk parity. So I don't think you see a substantially horrible underperformance versus, say, 60-40. Um, and it also goes about how you risk manage it. You know, there are very passive versions of this where you just own bonds and equities and you own too many bonds. The more actively you manage it, you start looking at correlations among these things, right? What if it turned out that all of my assets were correlated and they all went down together? Then my risk parity matrix is a bit wrong, right? I'm trying to target a 10 vol or kind of a consistent volatility in my fund. If everything goes down together, I have no diversification, that's problematic. So, you know, firms like ours, we have correlation overlays to help mitigate this. So between correlation and trend overlays, things that take you out of basically assets that aren't working. And I think in a way, that's what Man Solutions is about too, and how we talk to clients. We take some of those approaches that we see in our disparity fund and say, why don't you start applying this to your own portfolio? Even if you don't do the risk parity approach, you at least have something going on that, hey, bonds and equities are correlated. They're not supposed to be correlated. That's bad for me. I'll cut some risk here. And that's yeah. in that sense, that's how risk parity, if you're, if you're taking that approach, you're surviving, um, you're probably in line. Nobody wants to be in line, but after years of outperformance, that's not bad. And maybe we'll talk about it in a bit. You know, bonds are at a level where they might be useful again. And that's probably not in everyone's mindset. Cause right now, I mean, we've had clients, you know, last year clients would say, you know, are bonds still any use? Should we get rid of them? What should we do? This year, 200 basis points higher in bonds, or should I just get rid of these? Should I sell these? There's a bit of a little panicky feeling. And I would say they're dead wrong. But when I see a CPI print of eight and a half percent, can't blame them, right? <laughs> there's, a, there's a little something that, that, you know, makes you feel, awkwardly uncomfortable about that. <laughs> well, speaking of the sell-off that we've seen in bonds and stocks, we've heard a lot of people say that 60-40 is dead. And I'm wondering what you make of that and and actually where you might recommend people find diversification. Yeah. I you, you always hate to say dead because then like next year, I'll be back and you guys say, you said it was dead. And did you see the returns on 6040 for the last 12 months? And so I'm not going to say dead just for, for no others. But you know, I, I guess my question is, you know, was it ever really alive? 
in a sense that it was a it was kind of a random to begin with. I mean, if you think of weighting 60% in equities, 40% in bonds, on a risk basis, you're like 90% equities most of the time, right? Occasionally, bonds sell off. Usually, equities go up. But most of the time for the last 30 years, you've just wanted to own a lot of equities. And that's what 60-40 pretended to let you do. So I, I think where we are now is a bit different. We're, we're in a universe of equities and bonds going down together. There feels a lot. There's a lot of instability. We could talk about valuations and the interplay with bonds in a bit, I guess. But that instability is disconcerting. If they're both going down, I need to find things that don't behave like bonds and equities, which means commodities. And so it's always great when a person like me tells your investors, you know, you should go buy a bunch of commodities because that's diversifying. And your investor will say, but you know, crude was like 130 two weeks ago and it was minus 50 two years ago. <laughs> so where am I supposed to live with that asset? I, I don't have any reasonable way to use it. But the truth of the matter is, if you're going to get out of this is 60-40 dead conundrum, or at least find a place to stay You know, while you figure out what you're going to do with 60-40 in bonds. It's got to be multi-asset, whether it's multi-asset via commodities or real assets, infrastructure, hedge funds. You know, I work for hedge funds, so I have to say hedge funds. But you know, these sort of things, you need to find different ways to make money that aren't just beta and bonds and beta and equities. And I think that's the challenge that everyone's faced with right now. Is, is there anything popping out at you in that real asset space, uh, uh, you know, that's sort of attractive in this environment? You know, so for us, we tend to focus on the liquid part of the curve um, of, of the asset classes. So, you know, perhaps buying an airport works, um, but that's not what we do. So we're, we're very <laughs> much, we take, we, we invest in liquid assets, we risk manage them, and we find ways to make them fit in portfolios. And using the risk control, we try to suck something more out of them, right? So last time I was on, we had the bond problem conversation. We talked about using tail hedges, which were relatively cheaper then, to hedge an equity portfolio. Instead of doing 60-40, just go all equities and hedge it pretty aggressively. And you kind of get rid of your bond risk and, and you isolate what you're really after, high yield and equities. It's kind of a risky portfolio. Today's universe, I think you do have to live in commodities. It's just you have to have some approach to it, right? There has to be some how do I get out of this? What am I, you know, what am I, is it as simple as a stop loss? Maybe, right? You know, you can stop in and out of a position. I don't find that a very satisfying answer. So the way we tend to look at it is on two bases, one in a trend format. And that's something you should expect from Man Group. We have a big trend following firm, but it turns out in these big regime shifts where markets go through six, 12 month regime shocks, you have very long moves in, in asset classes. So we've seen it in bonds have steadily sold off. We've seen commodities steadily rally. Admittedly, there's a bit of a war premium that's built in there, but that's a starting point of how you might go about using it. Now, maybe you use trend or maybe you use some other lead lag models, right? It turns out when commodities start to go down aggressively before a big market correction, it's kind of a good signal that equities could be in trouble. So if you look back to COVID, commodities went down first and then equities tanked. So the more you can deal cross asset and the more you can take signals from these cross assets, whether it's from emerging market to warn you about commodities or FX to warn you, the, the more integrated your portfolio can be. And, it, and to some extent, it takes an asset manager to do it because do you really have the time to chase all this stuff, right? Are you going to wake up tomorrow and say, so where is this latte today? Or where is the REI? And, and is that working for me? I, I think that's quite difficult. And, and so trend kind of goes after that by getting you not just multi-asset commodities, but the FX markets are really fascinating, right? You know, People have gotten accustomed to... So I, I, most of my career, I was a vol guy and a tail hedger before, before this role. People loved owning the yen for every crash. And so 
all of those yen options, and we own some ourselves because you know, we're agnostic, we're tail hedgers. We don't try to outsmart the market. We just try to find cheap hedges. And you know, we struck them at 112 and 113 in, 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 in the yen and Jan, Feb. And the yen's at 125 right now. It just keeps going the wrong way. If you're invested kind of naively like us, we just say, yeah, I lost very little premium. It's a good you know, explosive tail hedge. If you're someone who says, I'm going to invest in the Nikkei, but in a way that the yen helps me out, so I'll, I'll kind of dollarize my investment. You've been pretty shocked because the Nikkei is down and the yen is down, so it's just not working. And so those are the things where trend can help you out a lot, where you just simply say, there's something new in the market. It's a regime that I don't understand. So when I see this kind of thing, I'll get out of the way or I'll change my focus to be tighter, I guess. Right. right. Well, Don, I cancel my plans to buy an airport. I was thinking about buying an airport, but... <laughs> But, where where would your airport be in New Jersey? Uh, yeah, I, that's it. That's the other problem with it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where I'd put it. You, where do you yeah. where do you fit these things? You don't want that. It's it's pretty fascinating what people will ask you too. They'll say, "Can you model our portfolio? And, you know, see how your approach might change things." So what we often do is say, "Look, you have some liquid assets. We'll take some index proxies. Like, oh, there's a private equity index proxy in real in, in the in the public markets. We can use REITs for real estate, and there's an infrastructure index that uses all kinds of public equity proxies. So we tried to do that for a client. We just couldn't match their result. And it turned out about 80% of their infrastructure assets were in airports and travel. And so it's a little <laughs> tricky to pick that up after COVID. <laughs> right, right. I'm not sure what we're missing because everyone's still you know use a highway between now and the next six years. <laughs> and so that's pretty good. You know, the follow-on questions you get like from that are, is there anything I can do to hedge that? And, and you're kind of left nonplussed. <laughs> and Peter, just to wrap up that conversation we were having about bonds earlier, I think you wrote recently that for the first time in my career, I have investors increasingly asking me if they should be shorting bonds as part of their asset allocation. And I'm wondering what you tell them. So I, I'm I'm a bit reluctant to say short bonds as part of an asset allocation. So there's some there's a difference between tactical and strategic, right? So the first thing you're going to get is fired by your board if you take a strategic bet short bonds and there's the crash, right? So we know that bonds have a lot of uh, benefits in a crash at these yields. I mean, if you hate bonds today at 275, then I'm not sure why you like them at 150, say before COVID. And admittedly, there's a totally different inflation paradigm. So I'm not trying to be too glib about it. Um, so I mean. I look at trend, you know, most systematic managers inside trend funds are probably short bonds. Um, I don't think there's any secret there. You can see the open interest in some of the futures. So I think it's the right position. I just worry that, you know, people are going to manage it right. Right. So when, when that, when bonds start to kind of, you know, find a level, then you sort of get out of these trend positions. So there's some kind of process to getting out of it when you're maybe wrong or the, the lack of utility is gone. For me, I'm much more focused on the correlation. And right now, it does seem like bond equity correlations aren't working well. So the idea of short bonds isn't crazy, right? It seems to be stabilizing your portfolio, but you need to do it in a pretty tight way. So I, I, you know, my general sense is it's a bridge too far for a lot of passive managers, right? If, you're, if you have a big pension board with 12, 15 trustees who are of mixed background and you know, between industries and, and hedge funds and finance, you're going to get some really nasty questions. And, and probably the terrific example is the, the big pension that stopped tail hedging. You know, they caught a lot of flack in the press for that, but there are a lot of good reasons to have done it, right? To have tail hedged and a lot of good reasons not to tail hedge. So people make kind of intellectual decisions. 
it's a question of how badly you get second guessed. And, and I guess my example of that is you don't want to be the guy who says, well, what happened was this, right? Because once you're saying that to an IC, you're sort of, you know, you know you're already in trouble. Just like if you said it to your spouse, you know, you're in trouble with the, <laughs> what happened was, you know, commentary. And so I think, you know, I think it's the right tactical asset allocation. If you put some risk around it, great. If you can rely on a trend type manager, another type of, you know, asset manager who has some clear quantitative signals around it, that probably helps you a lot more too. And it gives you some cover saying, you know what? The way they think about it is right. I like the signals they use. And it should keep me out of some big trouble if some big trouble comes up. Because after all, bonds were ballast for you for 30 years. So to turn around and say, I'm not going to use it, I'm going to go the opposite way. You know, Most of the people you talk to aren't going to have experienced that, and including me. right? I'm not going to have experience to say, yeah, bonds are lethal. Right. You know, get out of the way. No matter what real rates are um, as, as yeah. a practical matter. I, I'd love to unpack the notion of trend, trend following a little bit. You know, it's one of those um, things that sounds simple enough uh, on the surface, you know, but buy it, go long when the price is going up, short it when it's going down. Um, you know, and, and typically, you know, if you're talking about trend following in a hedge fund context, you're talking about CTAs, uh, like you guys manage commodity trading advisors that are pretty much only involved in the futures market. Um, but I'm wondering about a year like this where we saw you know an obvious downtrend in equities and then a quick snapback and then now we're back to the downtrend. I mean does your typical CTA trend following strategy is it able to to ride both of those trends or is it you know the the quick snapback is that something you just take on the chin and and just hold on longer for the the downtrend? You know I guess it all depends on on sort of how fine tuned the strategy is but you know uh, what's What's your thinking on that? You know, is it is that sort of short snapback rally something you can actually you know flip sides on and take advantage of, or or not? So it depends who you are and yeah. your speed. So it, it's a bit like saying I bought a one year tail option to hedge my portfolio, and another guy bought a three month one. If the market crashes in the first three months, he wins because he spent less money. So yeah. on the trend side, if you're a super fast trend guy, so you re- react to. Sh- these kind of quick rebounds, and then you chase the, the trend quickly, then you might pick up the sharp reversals very, very quickly. You did well, you did fine in COVID, and you got the bounce back in COVID very well. The problem with fast trend guys, which is not a, I shouldn't say problem, the thing, <laughs> there's a trade-off. The trade-off is that sometimes you make a mistake. And you know, you, you know, a bunch of dealers come out in, in February, the, all these strategists trying to call the bottom and say, we love stocks here. You should pile in. And then the trend reverses quickly. That's the faster guy might chase it. And so he may reverse. And then it turns out strategists are just trying to be on CNBC. So, you know, their call to buy stocks wasn't a good one and it all went down again. So you churned. On the other hand, if you're really slow, you missed COVID entirely. You started to sell, COVID went to zero, and then you started selling on the way back up, which feels all backwards. And if you're in the middle, um, you can guess we're in the middle because I'm going to sound more friendly. If you're in the middle, you kind of try to, to navigate that course. What, what I think is interesting about trend though, you know, there's money to be made in equities. There's no question. It's a decent risk tool for controlling how your portfolio runs. You know, so if you have a lot of equity risk and you decide I'll trim it as trends you know, seem to be negative, it's probably reasonable. And maybe it's a reason to rebalance at certain low levels in the market. But what's really valuable about it is the fact that it's multi-asset. So it's chasing things and doing things that you aren't going to be doing. And so when you look at what is a diversifier to my portfolio, is it a trend program that trades only bonds and equities? Maybe, but it may go the same direction. If trends are up, it's going to make me long everything. And that was what it would look like in, say, 2017, long everything. 
you know, yeah. great, perfect world. And then other times it might be short of bonds like 2018 and long equities, which feels very risky. And then, you know, sometimes it might just be like now, kind of short of both, depending on your speed, you're either short, you're probably short bonds no matter where you are. And you're probably in between on equities anywhere on the map. But all the other asset classes are really the fascinating ones because you don't have a view on that. Well, I shouldn't say that. Maybe you do have a view on that gas because you eat your home. But other than being pissed off about it, <laughs> your view is, I don't know what it's going to do, but I wish I had hedged it somehow. And so this is what trend is useful for, right? Is to, to, to develop a multi-asset framework, trading assets. There's nothing complex about it, right? You know, If you have great trading infrastructure and you have good models, you should be able to develop something rudimentary. Um, you know, every every really great trend manager has a few other pieces that they think are uniquely theirs, maybe crossovers and things like that. But it's the access to those kind of asset classes, like the yen going from 112 to 125. I have yet to find a person who, who in that move was like, no, this is totally logical. Now it's totally <laughs> logical at 125 and that everyone has a narrative. And I think this is, you guys face that same challenge, right? What, how do I put a narrative around something so wacky that it can't be explained, right? Like there was a day I remember I came in and like futures down as, you know, Russian invasion of Ukraine intensifies, the market recovered and it says futures higher as Russian invasion <laughs> intensifies. <laughs> and then it finally settled on, you know, futures unchanged. <laughs> and, and I think it was mixed as well as futures mixed. And so at that point, you're kind of like, okay, let's stop making narratives. And trend kind of doesn't bother with narrative. It doesn't think about it. What it might do is just misfire. Like it might see a trend and that trend reverses and it just gets out of the way. And so if you look at the last two years, the inflation universe for trend has been phenomenal. Like it's you're picking up on commodities, you're picking up on FX crosses, all changes in regimes that we haven't seen in a really, really long time. Yeah. Finally, someone that feels our pain and trying to uh, trying to nail that daily market narrative. <laughs> I, I was I was going to say those headlines were probably mine from, <laughs> from the Bloomberg market sprout. <laughs> in my defense, we only met today, so I didn't. I would have filtered otherwise. <laughs> and so this, this really I'm great reporter suggested that you know futures are mixed. <laughs> but it just had this sense of like I assume it's somewhat AI ish, right? Like as this the thing gets changed again and again and again. Maybe maybe I'm overcrediting AI and undercrediting you guys, but I could just see the the machine going. You know, screw this. <laughs> I just I can't deal with this anymore. It, it was definitely it was definitely an editor. <laughs> That's too a pool I don't I don't belong to, so we can we can blame so, so, uh, people uh, like Mike for those. Always blame <laughs> the editor. Yeah. 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 Actually, I'm really glad you brought all of this up because I wanted to ask you how difficult it's been to discern a message from the market recently. Yeah, I, I think that's that's really a great question because I think. You know, some people have mockingly said about us in finance that, you know, in 2020, there were thousands of experts on virology. And then, you know, in 2021, there are tons of experts on, on inflation. 2022, there are, you know, geopolitical and war experts that know exactly how all these things play <laughs> out. And you get plenty of emails, and maybe we're guilty of it at Man Group. I hope not, but we get plenty of emails for strategists saying, I think this is how it plays out. And you think, yeah, it really never ever plays out like you think it does in, in these sort of, you know, kind of broad-based geopolitical issues. So it, if you go back, I remember like Hurricane Katrina, oil was a driver of the market. Stocks went down when oil was going up. I mean, it was laughably $40 a barrel, I think then. And, and so you kind of knew what you're supposed to look at. 
COVID, you maybe you looked at case counts. There's some things to kind of some signal you could look at, but mostly for me, I like to look at you know which assets are moving. And so in the GFC, we looked at you know kind of funding spreads. Like, is there stress in the market? Are banks able to borrow? So we have all these metrics we look at. This one, good song, the Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip. Who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka, and I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two this is our podcast and we're going to do it our way listen to our way on the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast good song the Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two this is our podcast and we're going to do it our way listen to our way on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and kind of defies that right you know, there's a little period where oil was going up and then rates would sell off and then equities would sell off. And it was kind of a ripple each time, right? And then March just blew your whole theory out of the water, right? There's this big run up in rates at the end of March, along with a big run up in equities. And you don't know how to grapple with that if you're trying to make a narrative, right? You know, the narrative that came out of the end of March, which felt a little contrived, was stocks are not so bad in inflation, really, because they have pricing power. And so the people who are spreading that narrative, you know, it's there's some re, there's some rationality behind it, but you know how many of those were saying last year, you know, with yields this low, you have to own stocks because they have earnings yield, and so that spread to the treasury is really valuable, and and you know they should trade at a multiple that's more in line with treasuries. To me, that's also laughable because if, an, if stocks making a four percent earnings yield with treasuries at fifty basis points, does that mean I should use the fifty basis point reference? And so if I own a hundred, you know, of treasury bonds, I can. You know, afford to own stocks all the way up to 100 and pay up to a 99 PE, you know, something absurd like that. That doesn't really make a lot of sense. So I think that's the challenge of this market is getting your hand the head around that there isn't a single line item that we can look at. And and I think that's a it's a change from what we're kind of used to. COVID was just unknowable and, and we all made panicky bad trades. Even you know the really brilliant man solutions people made some, you know, 
subpar traits. Uh, and that's about kind of dealing with risk and surviving it. Now it's, it's a little bit, you know, head scratching. So the more you can diversify, the less pain you get. As long as you understand the totality of the diversification and you don't sit there and look at, I told you not to buy that zinc. And you know, everyone looks around like, did you? I don't remember you saying anything about nickel. <laughs> you always, and then you, you look in an email, you know, there's like a line somewhere, like page 46 of someone's deck that says, be cautious around. Yeah. <laughs> around zinc and nickel. <laughs> you know, Peter, I, um, the narrative uh, seems to have really uh, shifted away from COVID. You know, it's like mission accomplished with COVID. And then, you know, you look out around the world and you've got, this situation in Shanghai uh, with the city, you know, in a pretty long lockdown. I'm reading yesterday, Philadelphia is bringing back uh, the mask mandates. Um, are we done with COVID? Do you think is it still is that a tail risk or is that a regular old risk? How would how would you think about the risk of COVID and, you know, sort of where would you rank it among our our the big risks out there and and what is that risk exactly i mean it's me it, it it sort of raises the specter of this deflation story that you hear you know if if the supply chains in china are messed up uh and we still have war in ukraine and russia's and, and oil's over 100 you know that that to me sort of adds to the the um um stagflation risk that that a lot of people have talked about is it as simple as that or, or how are you thinking about it well, I, I'll harken back to my previous comment that I'm not a virologist, so I'm not going <laughs> to I'm not going to pretend to understand China's particular approach. But I think we're concerned a little bit that there's going to be a supply chain disruption again. And what's funny is in the old days, supply chain disruptions were just bad for companies trying to make money, but now they're really bad for the inflation narrative. So the, the market really doesn't need any more inflation stories. I mean, if I have to read more people talking about used car prices and then the impact <laughs> on the Federal Reserve's thinking because of used car prices, I mean, I, I can't believe Jay Powell was shopping for a used car, but maybe he's got a grandkid or something that like, <laughs> he's looking for you know, a somewhat beat up Nissan of some sort that he can get him and he just can't get his hands on it. Um, so the COVID piece is a bit like that. You know, we, I think that the real issue, and I think you, you're sort of alluding to the idea, I want to use commodities because of inflation, and I'm worried about bonds because of inflation. But then this Ukraine war thing, I thought war bad, so bonds good. And so if we figure out some way of kind of dealing with the energy shock, you know, does that mean bonds have a place? Or what if the energy shock is so extreme that you know, it causes some recession. Like, let's start pricing 250 a barrel for whatever reason. Like, you contrive a scenario you know, that comes up that way um, between an attack in Saudi and, and, and the Ukrainian war. And the same might be for COVID. And, and I'll say we got it, in a sense, wrong in our trend funds. We were basically positioned in inflationary looking assets in November when Omicron hit. And it was a very big, fast deflationary shock, right? And so we do what we do. Your systems just close risk when it doesn't fit and and then rebuilds it. So, you know, it looks a bit like hmm, that was a bit, you know, quick to judge there on a on a half day Friday after Thanksgiving. But that's kind of how it risk manages itself. So you kind of know what what it's going to do. You know, I think in the back of your mind if you're an investor and you're saying I want to go from long bonds to short bonds, you probably need to have someone play that devil's advocate piece and say, "You know what? I hear you, but what about this COVID bit? You know, what about the war bit? What if the, you know, what if the war expands into just anything? You know, even an accident, the accidents happen, right? And so, what if that accidental bit happens? So, I, I don't know why China is so aggressive um, relative to everyone else. Sometimes I wonder if they know something about COVID or don't in terms of the 50 year plan. Um, but at the end of the day, that's their approach. 
And so there may be some supply shocks. And we've certainly seen China growth numbers look different from ours, right? And so that's another interesting aspect of how the world is sort of developing that we're now all on different cycles. You know, it used to be everyone went into deflation shock together and everyone kind of came out together more or less. You know, now we definitely, I don't know if it's a bipolar, tripolar, whatever, however poles there are on, on well, it's a bipolar earth, but however many poles you want to stick in the world, um, you know, there is a definite difference in the economic cycle in, in China. Um, and, and versus ours, they're looking to stimulate demand, and you know we're trying to do the opposite. So there's there's some natural friction among asset classes, and some thinking that has to go into how you manage all that. So yeah, yeah, it's not none of this is easy. Like the, you know, I'm supposed to come on and tell you it's all really easy. You know, call us, <laughs> call us up. This is what you should do. It just isn't. So in some ways, I feel like a therapist at times. So people tell you this is what do you think, and you kind of just listen to people struggle through it all and say, look, this is kind of what we think about, you know, take a few deep breaths, use this, yeah. use this, use this. And and then if you can develop that framework, at least then you have something that's working for you. So you can stop waking up at, you know, 4am and say, wow, the ADRs are down 42% right now. Or, you know, this social media company is down 37% right now. That's an $800 billion company. Can that happen to an $800 billion company? And the answer is yes. <laughs> I can. <laughs> you know, so, so Peter, if, if, you're trying to decide at this point whether you should be long treasuries or short them. It, does it all basically hinge on whether or not you believe the Federal Reserve when it comes to quantitative tightening or whether you think they're going to sort of get scared away from uh, the path that they're on and, and, and sort of readjust their plans for QT and, and not be as aggressive? I mean, is that, is that the only variable to worry about when you're long or short bonds at this point? You know, I, I I guess so. For me, the Fed is the, the conversation around the Fed has been very much like last year is like, well, they might do something next year, and then by the end of the year, maybe three or four. Now it's nine. Now they're to start running off the balance sheet. So it feels like they've been pretty behind. The market has accepted them being pretty behind. I mean, where we are in equities and, and bonds right now, maybe it felt like a bad start to the year, but it's not catastrophically bad, right? We're not talking 1987 catastrophically bad. So. I kind of look at the wings of the problem, you know, the far out tails, right and left tail to the problem. And if the Fed can pull off soft landing, that's probably a pretty good right tail, right? I don't think the market at this point is probably confident of a soft landing. Whereas in 2018, if you remember, you know, Yellen and Bernanke were on stage and, you know, Powell, I guess, had no choice but to listen and turn from hawkish to dovish really fast. And so 2019 was, you know, all bets are on. Everyone piles in. You were confident the Fed had your back. COVID, you know, it wasn't easy to be confident, but the Fed had your back. Here, it's definitely different, right? The Fed doesn't have your back. You don't know where the Fed put is. So there is that chance if inflation just keeps printing these kind of numbers and the, the job market stays tight and we see wage inflation, house inflation, all of this, it is going to be pretty hard for them to have your back. And so, you know, your confidence in bonds, well, if they have to hike 10, 12, 13 times and they really run off the balance sheet, I'm certainly not confident about 30-year bonds at you know 150 basis point and you know kind of uh, difference to the front year to two year. So there's a lot of moving pieces to it, and I think it just keeps going back to you know running your portfolio with some active risk management that just when it's not working, step away, and when it starts to work again, you know sometime after the next Fed hike, you say okay, it's starting to stabilize. It makes sense to me. I kind of see where things are going. You might miss a few percent, right? But you miss a few percent on the way up, it's better than getting hit with 20% on the way down. And I think that's by and large the challenge I think investors face because you're all benchmarked. <laughs> you have to make as much as your peers make, and they may not always make the right decision. And so some of our systematic strategies 
feel like, you know, should it really be cutting risk here? It seems fine to me. Like, and, and the other, I guess the analogous piece I have to that is a lot of people will say after the yield curve inverts, it's not a sign that you should sell. It's a recession sign. Everyone's got this blanket kind of thing. And then everyone rolls out for the next 12 months, you tend to make money in stocks. But the path of some of those 12 months, I mean, it you know, depends what kind of roller coaster you like to ride, right? Some of those 12 months were like, you know, a nice uphill to the top and you get off at the top of the roller coaster and it was nice. <laughs> Others weren't exactly like that. And it seems to just ignore that if you just take any random day, right? Like I, I took Thursday and added 12 months, equities tend to be up. And so it's not a very useful benchmark to just tell me, usually this happens because, you know, I, I know a lot of us can't survive the stomach churning, you know, of minus 25% on the way to up 2% at the end of the year. Yeah. Especially with such a unusual environment that we're in, there's really not much of an analog in history to, to draw a one-to-one, you know, connection. Exactly. To. Yeah, exactly right. Peter, can I actually ask you to describe what you see are some of the factors behind the renewed equity sell-off we're seeing in April and how some of those factors or, or, or what's different between now and the first couple months of the year and whether or not we're continuing to see that valuation reset that everybody was talking about at the start of the year or if it's more of a growth scare in your view? Yeah, so I, there's a lot to unpack there, actually. Um, you know, it depends what you think April 1's valuation, whether it made sense or not relative to March. And so I think there's some liquidity issues in the market. I think this year has been very much defined by liquidity. So we see days where very low volume, up a lot, reasonably high volume, down a lot. But there's never a really confident update with very high volume. It's often down a lot and then back to flat with tremendous volume. Now you feel like, okay, there's some logic, there's some real buying there. Um, I think the end of March kind of equities have this cool inflation hedging potential. It felt a little bit like just an excuse. Retail was maybe piling in. We certainly saw money flowing in. So there are a lot of different forces pushing the market up. And maybe it overshot a little bit, right? Because you know some systematic strategies are short. There are people like us who run hedge mandates for, for clients who are monetizing hedges, taking profits, kind of right-sizing. So a lot of different things can kind of feed into that. You know, what caused the market to rally. And so then you end up looking for a narrative what's caused April to start weekly. Well, rates have moved up a lot again. So you know, the big bugaboo of the market isn't really the war. The big bugaboo of the market is is rates and valuation and multiples. And you've seen it in the growth stocks, right? NASDAQ still really hasn't gotten out of its own way just yet. And and I think that can be heavily attributed to rates. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way. A brand new show from My Heart Podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everybody, including sitting presidents. So join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before. Tell it like it is and even sing a song or two. 
This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody, including sitting presidents. So join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before, tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Peter, one last thing before we get to our uh, our crazy things of the week. In the notes you sent, or I sent over, I noticed you said, uh, you know, cash isn't completely unattractive uh, right now, which is kind of interesting to me because I don't know how many people we talk to who are, who are like, well, whatever you do, you can't be in cash earning nothing. But, but what is it about cash right now? Is it just waiting for, you know, for all the selling in, in the other asset classes to end? Or is it that finally those money market rates are... are Starting I mean, to look attractive. It's it's not so much that cash is going to make you a lot; it's just not going to yeah. lose you anything, right? So I, yeah. I I think others would say you're just waiting for gutto if you think you're going to buy other <laughs> assets on the cheap. Um, I I just think people need to sit back and say, okay, if I sell something, must I buy something? And so <clears throat> when a client comes to us and says, hey, you know, I'm I'm eighty twenty in equities right now. What do you think there? My first knee because I'm a tail hedge guy. My first reaction is like, oh, well. You've been pretty lucky for the last 40, 50, 80 years. So maybe it's time to feel less lucky and, and sell some. Like, well, what am I going to buy? I, sh- I should buy private equity. And you're like, well, maybe. I don't know. But that doesn't seem like it's all that different from equity. And you get into these conversations where <clears throat> I don't want to own bonds. Okay. You don't want to own bonds. I don't, I don't know how to trade commodities. I can't trade commodities. Oil was at minus 40. At least equity goes to zero. And so at some point, you can just say, you know what? Put it in cash. The right answer for me as a as an employee of man group is just put it in hedge funds because they can make lots of money. But the, <laughs> the easy answer that doesn't require a lot of thought is put it in cash and figure out where you're going. It's not meant to make you a ton of money. It's to simply say, I don't understand everything that's going on. And def- absent a brilliant scenario, I mean, I can give you our list of best ideas. But you've got to go to an IC and an IC has 10 people. One po- person wakes up in a bad mood and just says, you know what? I'm don't want to do that. And, and so you, you end up in a muddle. And I think sometimes on the risk management side, people spend too much time reallocating because you need to beat your benchmarks and meet your peers. And, and, and you know maybe cash isn't a terrible, terrible thing. You know what it's worth. And now the counter argument to that is if you plan to do that for a really long time with this kind of inflationary environment, you will look like an idiot. And so, so you know, my, my note there is to it doesn't matter what you buy next. If you're worried about de-risking, de-risk first, and then worry about where to put it, right? right. You know, and, and one, I, I worked for Stan Druckenmiller way back when, and he had a, a line once when he, was, he wanted people to de-risk. He had some thoughts that the market might go down. And he said, and by de-risk, I don't mean 
sell a bunch of stuff you don't own to make yourself market flat. I mean, sell what you own so that you don't have any issue, right? Just de-risk, get rid of your longs and your shorts, cut everything back down. And there are times where you should just do that. And, and I think that the desperate fear of you know not earning enough to match inflation or not you know getting caught out missing bonds missing this missing that you know from a risk control standpoint it isn't always a, a legitimate argument right capital preservation over capital appreciation i guess <clears throat> yeah but it makes me a very unpopular person if you know i imagine <laughs> i imagine a ray dalio would say yeah that guy's an idiot <laughs> but it's very easy for him to allocate your assets because he's you know, and for us too, it's just harder sometimes when you have a, a different group of constituencies inside your framework that just have a different view. Like the dollar is worthless. No, the dollar is king. And you're like, okay, what do I do with that? <laughs> <laughs> good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, Peter, always a uh, uh, pleasure to catch up with you, but now we got to take you out of your wheelhouse and get to the crazy things of the week here. Yeah. Uh, what what's the craziest thing you saw this week? Well, I I was going to go with the whole Twitter Elon Musk drama where he was going to join the board, then he rescinded and everybody was tweeting about the drama. (laughs) And he's been he's been asking people about changes he should be making for Twitter. But I actually had a call in from our friend Max Gockman, who was on the podcast just a couple of weeks ago. And Mike, I'm I'm sure you you know what the Bored Apes are, yeah, right? Oh, yeah. The Bored yes. Ape. Yeah. So the company behind the Bored Apes is called Yuga Labs. And Max went through their pitch deck. He was looking through it. He noticed one slide that has the financials, sort of like a breakdown, a, a pie of all the, the, fin- the financials breakdown. And the components are the craziest thing. So Bored Apes is one component. Land sales is another. And then there's two sections, one for goblins and one for mechanical dogs. Wait, land land sales? Land sales. I think in the metaverse. Oh, oh, of oh. course, of course, yes. It, but it's the goblins and the mechanical dogs that... Are they NFT projects too? I don't know. We didn't know. So it was just really, really interesting because the company raised $450 million. <laughs> Peter, if someone brings you a, a pitch book like that, I'm, I'm sure you're all in, right? And we, we're all in. We, we find it very easy to invest in things that can only go up. So it's, <laughs> it's quite straightforward. <laughs> That's great. Goblins. We've got to figure out how, what uh, allocation percentage to goblins uh, one must go. But uh, that's pretty good, Valdana. I like that one. How about you, Peter? You see anything crazy this week? You know, I was kind of disappointed. I didn't get to do the Academy Awards week because, you know, I like hockey and I didn't realize how, <laughs> how fun they could be, the, the award shows. But, you know, I'm going to go back a touch. It's been a weird year where liquidity is all about random moves. And every wake day, you kind of wake up with a random thing. And so the vol industry years ago had a short vol ETF and it, it imploded, exploded in miraculous, you know, just beautiful fashion, destroyed itself and, you know, went from 100 to 15 and disappeared. There's also a long vol ETF, which also managed to implode (laughs) over 10 years and go to zero. So we've created as an industry, the vol industry, a product that can be long and short, the exact same thing, and both of them go to zero. (laughs) So I thought that was impressive, but I found someone who did it faster. And so there's an Italian ETF on nickel. It's absolutely fascinating how it turned out. It turns out if you close the exchange on the way up, the 3x short nickel ETF gets liquidated. You close the exchange for whatever reason you close the exchange. You reopen it, it collapses. The 3x long vol, long nickel ETF also goes out of business. So within a period of two weeks, the long ETF and the short ETF with the exact same underlying 
you know, with three X leverage, managed to go out of business in two weeks. It took us about ten years to do that in the vol industry. So <laughs> I, I, I give some credit to the Italians for being ahead of the game. Um, but maybe a slight warning to people using three X leverage that you probably want to just double check that the underlines can't go negative or can't go up one hundred fifty percent in a couple hours. Oh my gosh! Absolutely, that's really good. That's really good. I think he wins. Yeah, that's pretty good. Anytime you mix three uh, X with uh, anything traded on the LME, I think uh, I think you got a crazy thing. Yeah, I think that by definition that those days are over. <laughs> but every time we say this won't happen again, <laughs> you, you have someone <laughs> who can't count the out, the open interest in the VXX note and <laughs> says we're over by fifteen billion. <laughs> and, and, and as Matt Levine wrote, like who's running that spreadsheet? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's- yeah, I think he said. Possibly was an intern and they, they stopped tracking it and nobody else took it over. Yeah, I think he nailed it. I think, I mean, having yeah. worked at big places, it does that have that right. sad feel of, yeah. And it's like, and then the 3X nickel ETF was just handed off to some new junior trader. Like, all you have to do is just do this every day. And then, you know, it should be fine. Yeah. Nothing should happen. Yeah. As long as the exchange is open, we'll be fine. <laughs> we'll be fine. What could go wrong? As long as the price doesn't go negative. It's like, okay, yeah, yeah. We, we, it's not going to go negative. I'm like, no, no. It's good. It's cool. It's cool. Uh, you trust me. You, you think I'm going to hand boss. you, you the intern, this portfolio, if it has any serious risk to it? <laughs> that's hilarious. Uh, that's so good. All right. Well, that is a good one. I, I think I, I might have to concede defeat to, to the 3X uh, nickel ETF, but I'll, I'll give you mine. Of course, I'm going to make you two play prices right with me here. I had two crazy things. I couldn't decide which one was better. So instead, I'm going to make you decide which one gets a higher bid. And they're two pieces of very, very important Gen X memorabilia. Madonna. So I don't know if, if, if Gen X, if you're comfortable with the Gen X. Uh, uh, you strike me as more of a millennial uh, memorabilia type. All, all your memorabilia exists in the metaverse. But for Gen X, our memorabilia is, is really there in, in the real world. So we've got two pieces of, of Gen X memorabilia. Oh, wait, wait, before you say that, I note that you didn't have a millennial comment for me, or you, you assume that I'm in a certain <laughs> generation. I, I just, I, I take small offense to that. But. Wow, he called you out. <laughs> it's, it's that maturity and wisdom. Uh, yes. Uh, isn't there a disclaimer, the use of the pronouns we are, isn't necessarily indicative of we all share the same view. <laughs> that's, that's exactly, exactly. Well, let's see, Peter. Maybe, maybe you're, uh, you'll get this one, one wrong too. Uh, Valdana's not bad at the prices, right? All right, two pieces of memorabilia. One, it's the iconic blue guitar that Kurt Cobain rocked out with in Nirvana's 1990s smash hit "Smells Like Teen Spirit" music video. So that one's coming up for auction uh, by Julian's Auction. So. Keep this in mind when you're pricing this is we only know what the auction house uh, hopes to get for that item. We don't know what it sold for, but it is a 1969 blue Fender uh, Mustang guitar. I believe it is uh, seen in the smells like teen spirit, the famous Nirvana breakthrough video uh, in the 90s. That's coming up for sale. So what do you think the auction house uh, is hoping to get for that? And the other one has already gone up for sale, and it is Tiger Woods golf clubs that he used in the Tiger Slam. Now, Valdana, if you're not familiar with the Tiger Slam, what that was is typically if you win a Grand Slam in golf, it means you won all four majors in one calendar year. And it's an incredibly difficult thing to do. But what Tiger Woods did is he won uh, two in one year, and then the first two in the next year, 
So four in a row, but not in one calendar year. So they called it the Tiger Slam. Still, still very impressive. So the irons and wedges, Titleist irons and wedges he used to win all four actually did go up for sale. Uh, and so we know the, the, we have price discovery on the actual bid for that. So Valdano, we'll start with you. What do you think deserves a higher bid? The uh, Kurt Cobain's guitar or Tiger Woods's irons and wedges? And as, as a tiebreaker, give me the uh, bid of the higher priced item. The guitar, for sure. I'm going with four and a half million. Four and a half million for the guitar. Vildana says with great confidence. Peter Atwater, our confidence uh, guru guest, would be very proud of the confidence with which you uh, stated that. Peter, how about you? Tiger I just want to Woods say for the record, I didn't see her hands to see what you know was in her hands while she, these questions were being asked. Well, she's so, you know, she's <laughs> well, it's showing me them now. <laughs> this is a podcast, so <laughs> she's a fast Googler. She's a fast Googler. So I will say my offer on the guitar was substantially below four and a half, which is problematic. My logic was, you know, golfers have lots of money; they pay for things like this. But it wouldn't be interesting if they were worth more than the guitar. So I'm going to lean with the guitar. I guess I only have to be a penny below her to win if <laughs> in that case. <laughs> but I'll, I'll be less jerky about it and we'll we'll make it like 3 million. Um although my pen on paper here is not that number of digits. <laughs> <laughs> now, I what I should do is make you guys turn off the other person's answers. I feel like hearing the yeah. other person's answer is. No, it's is, totally fine is, that you let her go first. I have is, a lot more dignity because now I just look like kind of a finance jerk who <laughs> <laughs> just kind of undercut the price and and that sort of thing. Like improving the opinion the general population has of people like us. <laughs> so Tiger's clubs went for five point two billion. Five point two million. Excuse me. Oh, that, that hurts. Wow. That hurts. Five point two million. They, they come with a certificate of authenticity. And not only that, they come with a, a polygraph test results from the guy at Titleist who Tiger gave him back to at the end. Um, now, where you might be tripped up is that, again, Kurt Cobain's guitar hasn't actually gone up for sale. So it very well right. could go up for more than what they expect. Uh, but they're only expecting 800000 for the oh, Cobain so, so basically, guitar. the reverse oh, contrarian no. was the way to go there. Yeah. <laughs> instead of just instead of just answering the golfers have money and they spend money like idiots. Sometimes it's Occam's <laughs> like, razor, you know? Sometimes. Yeah. Um I was so far off. But well, I will say I do think uh Kurt's guitar is gonna go more for more than that. His acoustic uh is that already went up for sale is the most expensive piece of rock memorabilia ever sold at like five million. So you so guys all I all I really need to do is find out if Elon Musk is a fan. And <laughs> although we're right, I still lose. So, <laughs> so I, I think get you, to, had the, you had the lower end. So I think yeah, you, I, would, I, I, I think, lose either way. Unless I'm lower <laughs> on the price, but if 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 we're right and Elon Musk pays, whatever. <laughs> if you can pay nine billion for a small social media stake, <laughs> that stake yeah, is, you, you can afford a guitar. Pay. Yeah, you never know when you though. need it. It's handy to have around if you want to serenade someone. So uh, that's true. That's so. true. Grimes, his his uh, his lady friend Grimes might be able to write a song. And it, it. You know, in inflationary times, you know, just bring it full circle. It's a real asset. It's a real asset. Absolutely. <laughs> Collectibles do really well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I was surprised by I was surprised for five million for Tigers clubs. Uh, but I mean, it, you know, I think to your point, 
there's a lot of golfers with money out yeah. there and uh just someone think, just has to have it if you just have to have it yeah it was, probably Phil, it was probably Phil Mickelson who will who will sculpt them down. <laughs> Just bend them all. Bend them all, yeah. <laughs> break them over his knee. But with that said, Peter, always such a great opportunity to catch up with you. I, I hope we can have you back again soon. Um, uh, really appreciate your insights on everything going on at Man. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. It was good fun. See you guys. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Valdana Hyrick is at Valdana Hyrick. What Goes Up is produced by Stacey Wong. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.